The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. All right. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. Happy summer. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI women's crew rowing coach Mike Sullivan. We actually just met last Sunday. I was out having a great bike ride in Back Bay when I discovered a large warehouse near the Newport Dunes Marina, and the warehouse had big letters painted on the side that said UCI Crew. And as I got closer, Coach Sullivan happened to be coming out the access gate, and we got to talking, and now here we are. So I'm really looking forward to a great interview. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Coach. How are you today? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid? I was into sports. Uh, You know, I grew up all over. My dad moved us every uh, four or five years or so, and then... He was not in the military. He happened to be a CPA, so it was a strange oh. thing. But we ended up in California. We went. From, from, was he with a big firm or? Uh, yeah, he ended up at Alexander Grant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Chicago, Phoenix, then to here. Yeah. I mean, then to uh, Northern California, Menlo Park, and that's I consider Menlo Park my hometown. Oh, okay. And right next door to Stanford, and went to high school there. And so, yeah, that's my hometown. Yeah, gotcha. So were you a rower in high school? Nope. I played basketball and ran track and cross country. Uh, Basketball was my favorite sport. Played it all the time. I still still like it. Yeah. (laughs) Played up to about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Okay. And how did you end up at UCI? Um, because UC Davis and UC Santa Cruz said no. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And that's where all my buddies were going. So back in the day, you know, I was just following the crowd and my buddies were all wanted to go to UC Davis. So I said, I guess I'll go there. Hadn't put a lot of thought into it. And Mm -hmm. I looked and it was close to the beach and I thought, okay, that, that'll work. So, yeah. 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 Very good. And those were the early days of UCI. It was, the school was about five years old. Five years old. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did did it feel like it was brand new back in those, you know, were the trees not very big. Oh, and- trees were when we played uh, ultimate, not ultimate frisbee, but frisbee golf. Okay, mm-hmm. which I feel like we invented because we were out <laughs> in the middle of the of the ring, uh, and you, the trees were really small to try and hit. Okay, yeah, yeah, because yeah, <laughs> that right. was your holes. You didn't have 
uh, holes. We just thought, okay, yeah. there's the the holes in front of humanity. Let's go that third tree next to humanities. That's a par four. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the way we played it. So, yeah, the trees were really t- tiny to hit back then. Yeah. So, some uh, some big bands played at UCI Crawford Hall back in the day. Do you remember any of that? Or I, know, I Yeah. In fact, when I was on the team, they used to use the rowing team as bouncers. Oh. At the concerts. Okay. Oh, okay. But I really wasn't into it. Uh-huh. So there were big acts that came through, I'm sure, that I think I even went to some and I didn't pay attention. You didn't even really realize it. Because yeah. back in the late 60s, Led Zeppelin played here and Janis yep. Joplin. And yeah, the, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, I everything, I missed the whole thing. I mean, uh, I played in a little high school rock band, a garage band and things like that. But I missed the whole thing. I grew up in Menlo Park. I got music lessons from Phil Lesh. I had oh, yes, I did. I got bass lessons. Oh, the and Grateful it, Dead, right? Yeah, the Grateful Dead. Yeah, uh, Jerry Garcia used to work at the local music store. And, no way. And Do you remember that? I, I and I had no clue. I yeah, had no idea right. who they were. We had uh, Carlos Santana play at my junior prom. Nobody knew anybody. I had a friend who played backup guitar in our band. I mean, he played, he was our lead guitar in our band, but he would go play backup at Winterland and all those places. Wow, the legendary big places. exactly. When people were missing players, he'd go play. And so all this was going on, I just took it for granted. It wasn't until, like, the age of the internet, and I was looking things up and looking in Wikipedia, and I, man, I had no idea that Stevie Nicks went to our local high school. I had no idea that Buckingham and Nicks were at at the rival high school that I would have gone to had I grown up across the street, you know? Yeah, 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 and, yeah. You know, I just had no idea that any of that was going on. <laughs> yeah. So just clueless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, so you're, you were doing the more of the sports route. So when does rowing into the picture? Because you were quite active when you were here as a student at UCI, right? Oh, yeah. Before we started classes, I got uh, recruited by Stu Gibson, who was the freshman coach back then. We're still friends. How did you f- we were, find out? How, did he find was, you? Or? Uh, there was a boat sitting out in the... Well, it starts before my cross-country coach mentioned to me I would be a good rower. So it was sort of in the back of my head. I hate to kind of admit how I got into the sport, but it's pretty funny. And and I, I think about it when I recruit other kids right now. Uh-huh. But there were two other guys with me who were bigger and stronger and better looking athletes than I was. <laughs> and, Those are all important factors. Stu was recruiting them, Roy and Steve. Uh-huh. And they ended up becoming my roommates and lifetime friends and everything like that. And I was sort of behind them in the laundry room and Stu looked over and saw me and said, oh, well, you can come too. And so I said, okay, I'll come on down. And I turned out to be the really dedicated one to the sport. I started right away. After about a week or so of rowing, he decided this was for me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. What'd you like about it so much? Um, it's hard to put into um, into words at the time, but I I think the sensation of moving through the water. Mm-hmm. I was a cross country runner, so I saw there was an advantage in having fitness i like distance running and things like that yeah so i wasn't a real strong guy at the time and so the coach was saying oh yeah we're going to get you to fill out that t-shirt and you know vain guys we like to be (laughs) we like to look good so i thought okay you know because i had been started lifting weights that that summer so Mm. um so it was sort of a combination of i was pre-informed of it before i got there and then i also have to thank wendy girdlestone 
Who's Wendy? Wendy Girdlestone was a girl I kind of had a crush on for a little while. Okay. And I was asking her, yeah, you think I should do this rowing thing? Or what do you think? Oh, I think it would be really cool if you were on the rowing team. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay, yeah. And yeah. then she went off and got another boyfriend and <laughs> I got rowing. <laughs> very, very good. Now, did you think basketball at all in college or was that? I, was, I didn't even start on my own team. And mm. so I was good. Um, my brother played here at UCI, oh. um, and I was actually a stronger athlete than Mark. Uh, could jump better, faster, and all that kind of stuff. But he could play ball, and I couldn't. Uh-huh. So there's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. And, and when he played here, uh, when he played here, he showed me the tooth a couple times. Like we used to be pretty well matched, even when he was in junior college. But once he got here, uh-huh. he took me out on a one-on-one court and showed me the truth. Okay, okay. You know, uh, to this day, um, back in the day, I was working at Price Waterhouse, and uh, I was pretty athletic, but I would do, you know, kind of solo things like triathlon, you know, medium triathlons and other stuff. And there was a guy at the office that uh, we were kind of competitive on many different levels. And um, he goes, hey, uh, why don't we play some hoop? And and my brother was a basketball coach. So I thought maybe I could play. Yeah. So I go out to practice like for one night with my brother before this big meeting. And uh, he was encouraging, but he knew that I did not have a chance. And I really, I think I got beat 20 to nothing. <laughs> that's that's what my brother did to me on the, on the, on the last time we played one-on-one. Yeah, 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 so yeah. It, it's, yeah, it was, yeah. it was humbling and exciting to find out, oh, he's gotten really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very you good. Know, well, hey, yeah. Paul Heeshan, if you're out there, I, I acknowledge defeat and yeah, and you beat me that year. So yeah. Anyway, very good. Hey, so you get into rowing and you took to it right, right away, yeah. um, more than anybody else. So uh, so, you know, we would have uh, one practice a day in the morning. I would attend a second practice. We'd row in the morning with the, with the, the freshman team, and then I would lift weights in the afternoon on one day, and then the next day I would actually run to the boathouse from here Wow! And take a single out. Wow! And then get a ride back with one of the varsity guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I mean, was, you were totally dedicated, and really, I mean, you were in the top shape of your life at that. Well, point, not too. then. It was not uh-huh. till you know I became a real good athlete out of that. But yeah, I was getting in better, you know, better and better fitness. Uh-huh. But I could. Uh, I was a good runner in high school. Uh-huh. I was. Uh, I was a pretty good uh-huh. runner in high school. But by the time I was a senior. I was extremely strong as well as still a good runner. Mm. So mm. one of the things I challenge my uh, male athletes with is see if you can run a sub five minute mile on the same day you can bench press three hundred. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm not okay. even sure what that means, but well, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's quite an accomplishment. And bench press is not a rowing exercise, so it's specifically mm. it's not something we're supposed to be necessarily yeah. good at. But it just yeah, bench press. Yeah, you know, it seems like with the, the it's way not, that it's not. We would, I'll yeah, take your word not, for it. It doesn't. It's not specific to rowing. Uh, but okay. we when we lifted, we lifted for whole body strength just to be balanced and be mm. athletes to mm. turn ourselves into athletes. Mm. And that was the gotcha. That was it, the thing that had to happen. Now yeah. the boathouse that I met you at the other day, is that the same location where the old one used to be? Or? That's the same boathouse Duval Hecht built in 1965. Wow. Okay. So he showed up here. He was a stockbroker in LA and they were they were talking about putting a campus here. He, he, he was a three-time, uh, he was a two-time Olympian gold medalist. 
in, in rowing? In rowing. Wow. And um, he had done a little coaching up north at Menlo College and had the coaching bug. And so he thought he wanted to start a program down here where he was living. And so he talked to Wayne Crawford, who Crawford Hall is named after, and they came up with a game and that plan. And was he the AD? He was the athletic director. Okay. Yeah. And he went out and found a group of uh, men he worked with, Budge Collins and John Lusk and people like that who invested in his company. And he got a bunch of money and they they poured a slab and built a building. And wow. it was temporary okay. building. They were going to, they had long-term plans for a, a major facility actually close to campus. But uh, the environmental changes with the upper bay took that away. Oh, so, really? Yeah, yeah. So. You know, can you describe that a little bit? Because, you oh. know, I know things have changed over the years, but I can't specifically tell you how they've changed. The most interesting bit of local history yeah. was that the Upper Bay was supposed was owned by the Irvine Company. And they they had the master plan showed major marina going all the way up to Jamboree Road. Oh. And Duval had mapped out a 2,000 meter rowing course at that part of the channel that would go underneath Jamboree Road and practically on to campus into San Joaquin Creek here. Wow. And the boathouse would be there at the corner of what is now Back Bay Drive in Jamboree. The boathouse would be on a five-acre parcel there, which is practically walking distance to campus. Right. But the Irvine Company fell afoul of what's called the Committee of 500, which was out to protect the bay. And they found that the company had been... Uh, in violation of a lot of laws over many years in developing all the, all the uh, the back bay, all, not the back bay, but the or, uh, the lower bay. So all of the leased properties there were built on littoral zones that they weren't supposed to build on, uh-huh. and so they made a deal. And that basically, Irvine Company just gave them the upper, gave to state the upper bay, and then uh, in trade off for not not uh, going after the lower bay, which had been developed for 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, it'd be silly to, to right. do all that. So they, when, they, they when you're back. talking about the lower bay, that's... Lower bay, that's the main channel. Yeah, well, yeah. we know, okay. So a lot of those, those million-dollar homes are sitting on leased property. Still? Yes. Oh, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of those properties there are not owned by the owners, but are sitting on... Huh. Either 50 or 99 year leases. And, and, uh, and primarily owned by the Irvine Company? Yep. Wow. Still owned by the Irvine Company. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, excuse me just for a moment, Coach, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today, live in studio, is UCI women's rowing coach, Mike Sullivan. And we're learning all about his career and, and when he was here at UCI from about 1970, 1974. Is that right, Mike? That's exactly right. How did you decide what you were going to major in, which was social science and computer science? I, I, I decided to major in computer science because... Because I really like computers in high school, and I loved, I loved, you know, I loved playing around. And I actually, but just like everything else, I, it was went over my head. I was not man, smart enough. Those were the early the, days. Those, are, I swear, I don't know for sure, but I think I went to a computer user meeting that had uh, Steve Wozniak in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back, those those legendary meetings. Yeah. That they used I to went have. to one of those guys with a computer club, and I was so lost 
Were you? Everybody was so much smarter than me and knew everything. And I was kind of like, oh, man, what is what am I doing here, you know? Yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I liked it. And I uh-huh. figured, well, I'm still ahead of other people. So it's... Right. Yeah. And you had a long career in that. Did you not? Yes, I did. But I, I wouldn't have been able to do it had I stayed in computer science. <laughs> Uh, well, can you tell us a little bit first about your your rowing career while you were studying at UCI? Yeah, well, I I trained really hard. Yeah, uh, I got got decent grades, you know, yeah. and and uh, in social science, and I, I picked social science because I could take upper division programming classes without having to take the, the two years of all of the prerequisites that computer science demanded uh-huh. of all the you know the P5, you're supposed to take, no, you're supposed to take P3, I think. Uh, uh, physics 3, it was just mm-hmm. a, a, for majors. And all the upper division math and all that kind of stuff. I went, oh my gosh, I can't do that. And then also the ICS theory classes. The theory classes were really hard. So so um, what? what yeah, so what, I, I was able to so take a social science major and then I could go take basic and oh. and all the programming. I took about four or five programming languages. Oh, okay. Uh, just because you didn't have to, for non-majors, you can just be, take a class. Yeah. Okay. So that and, was, and you did fine? And yeah. You, you learned oh, yeah. Programming ton- is different than computer science. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anybody can program. Okay. It's like learning another language, period. So... Okay, so yeah. how about the high points in terms of um, you know rowing in college? Did you any any particular things come to mind? Oh, lots. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we were a very unique program. We had um, so the, the the program had been going for five years when yeah. you came. Yeah, so. and a, a, another coach came on after. We, I never was coached by Duval. Duval was gone by then. We had a coach named Bob Ernst, who was an amazing coach, and he introduced us all to uh, small boats rowing in pairs and singles. And we trained in those small boats and learned. And, and we also trained in the summertime, which other programs didn't do. So not all of us, the, but a, a core of us uh, jumped into small boats. And, you know, if we're rowing once a day during the year and a couple lift weights, about 14 hours a week was our minimum training training load. And then people like me would trade, train up to maybe 20 hours. Mm-hmm. And then, but we had real students who were bio-sci majors and physics majors and, and pre-meds and things like that. I graduated. In, my group in 1972 had seven out of nine PhDs. Wow. So <laughs> there were very few jocks on the team, a lot of good students, but a core of a few of us jocks, like you know, a few of us. We turned what's remarkable about our crew was we were probably the worst crew on the planet my freshman year, and we were one of the best in the nation my senior year with basically the same guys. Wow. And that was the training program we we went through during the summertime, learning to row the small boats and uh, a dedication to each other and and things like that. And the the summer racing was we doubled down on the amount of training we did, and we still got you know, a month off before school started. And that was just about right. Mm. And because we raced in small boats in the summertime, it was almost like a different sport. And because you weren't going to class and you had, you know, kind of lifeguarding jobs and things like that, that we did, it was just a really, really fun way to live. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Very, yeah. very good. So it sounds like in the summer you were like in one and two man boats what is the normal configuration? How many people are in a, a boat? 
In college rowing, the primary boat is an eight-man shell okay. with a coxswain, and okay. that's most of our racing. We do training in singles and pairs. And then during championship season, there are small boats that some of the athletes can go in and race. But the primary boats are the eights. Okay. And that's always been the case in college rowing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you guys were winning races. Absolutely. Yeah. We beat Cal. We lost to Washington by a second uh-huh. uh, my senior year. And Washington was the best crew in the country. Yeah. And so... And we should have beat them. It was, you know, we we were actually faster, and we didn't race very well. Oh. That that regatta, that race, we raced well, but we should have been faster. Yeah. When, and still gnaws on my craw, but that's what you. That's fine. It's still worth it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're one second behind, are you fighting the last thirty seconds? I mean, you're fighting the whole way, but do you have a sense? Do you know that you're going to win, or you have no idea? I mean, you, can you give us a sense of when you're racing, what is that like to come down to a second different? I can tell you on two different races in the same regatta weekend. We raced Cal in our heat. Cal had beat Washington that year, and Washington had, it was a like four crews that had raced each other during the year that were all about the same speed. Cal, Washington, Harvard, Wisconsin, and us. And uh, we beat Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin beat Harvard, Harvard beat Washington, you know, everybody, and they were all close races. Well, in our heat against Cal, it was in a headwind, and we have, uh, our body of our race was racing at a stroke rate. A stroke rate is how many strokes per minute, and our stroke rate was about 35, Okay, 35 strokes a minute. Is that that's, where you want to be? Is that's that... exactly where we wanted to be. Okay. And we had a headwind, and we had a superb start. We had a brilliant first 500, and, but we settled high at a 38 instead of 35. We were so fast, we put Cal in our rearview mirror. And it was our big mistake in that race, my big mistake, even as sitting in the five-seat, all I wanted to do was put as much distance between us and Cal as we could. I oh. just wanted to beat them by as much as we could. Yeah. Big, big mistake. Why? Well, we're, we overtaxed ourselves. It's a six-minute race. And in the first three minutes, we burned up everything. Did you? Yeah. So in the second half of the race, we all, all the links of our chain broke. People were just collapsing we didn't stop rowing but just right the boat slowed way down and you pick up a load because one guy fails the next guy fails and so i don't remember anything about the end of that race except immense pain helplessness and this feeling of losing that we can't do anything about cal's coming back on us and there's nothing i can do and then this horrible rasp my lungs got actually scraped up and burned from the stress so three or four of us were coughing our lungs out after the race. Rick Peterson, who our six man, uh, was coughing blood. And really? that was the worst race I ever endured. Worst practice, worst race. And we just over, we just, that was our lack of confidence in our ability. We, we you never got, should have done that. You, you, the adrenaline, the, just you, the, you, you got the, out of your the, game we plan? We just got out of our game plan, got out of ourselves, got out of knowing what we can do and, uh, and got, got, turned on by the moment yeah yeah the next day we had uh we had to qualify in what's called a repsage which means if you lose your heat you get another chance to make the final in a, in a repsage well we raced we weren't even sure we could row down the course we were all in such 
you know, our lungs were all torn up. Wow. But we were so much better than the other crews that we were racing. We raced, we rode at a 28, which is a really low rate. And that kind of got our confidence back. Remember, oh, yes, we're really, really good. We've worked really hard to get here. We don't have to work that hard to make our boat go fast. Mm -hmm. And so the next day we came out, much more patient race. We still weren't 100% from the day before. And and uh, so we came off much lower, patient all the way through the race. And then the last 500, we jacked it up to a 38 now that we could handle it. And that was uh, the, the feeling there was exhilaration. Uh -huh. Even though you're hurting, you're hurting because it's a long race. It's just this, the boat felt so good and it was racing so fast. We're going to win if there's enough race course was my thinking. If we have enough race course here, we're going to win. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to stop us, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And we ran out of race course. So we oh. we rode oh. through Cal, left them behind, rode, uh, uh, had been behind Washington by open water and rode back up through them. People who watched the race said it was one of the greater finishes they've seen. And, uh, and we charged on through them. But we lost the race, not because of our race then, but because of our lack of, you know, because of our inability to race hard the mm. first part of the race because we were so torn up from the day before. Mm. Gotcha. So overall, the regatta, it was a failure. Uh, mm. The race was an awesome race. It was a great row. Um, it felt great and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that was... And where was that race at? In Lake, at Lake Burnaby in British Columbia. Oh, yeah. Wow. It was uh, carved out of a lily pad lake. And it wow. was a beautiful course. Okay. Beautiful course. Yeah. Okay. So wow. we finished second and should have been, we were faster than Washington. We should have won that one. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, once you graduate, did you anticipate that you were going to keep yes. rowing? You did. You were. Yes. I knew I was going to try and make the national team. And yeah. so the year after I graduated, I applied for and got a single from the Olympic Rowing Committee. They sent a single out. What's, what does that mean? A single, single skull, a boat. Oh, okay. And so they had a couple boats that you could apply for. And if you had the talent, if they thought you had the talent and the ability, and sent, they thought, you know, I was the strongest guy in our boat. And so they sent me a single. And I had been sculling. So does that mean you just practice on? Practice in the single. So, and so I, my, my idea was I wanted to go see if I could be the U.S. single sculler and mm -hmm. the national team from there. And if not, I would try and make a team sculling boat. Now, there's two types of rowing, sweep rowing and sculling. Let me, let me Please. Sweep rowing, each person has a one oar. And sculling, each person has two oars. So if you row a pair, you're rowing a sweep boat. Each person has one oar. And I was, uh, my partner Bruce Ibbets and I raced a pair a whole bunch of times. You're not side by side? Or no. Are, or, well, you're be behind each other. Okay, okay. Yeah, behind each other. It's a long, narrow, skinny boat. Okay. And, and, and you have one oar on the right, one, one oar on and left. one on the left. It's it, a, is that a little tricky? Very difficult to row. <laughs> okay. Yes. It is <laughs> the hardest boathouse in the boathouse to row. Yeah, and we have a bunch, and it's really fun to watch people who've been rowing for a while try and get out in a pair the first time. Right. It looks like they've never rowed before. So um, That's funny. Actually, years ago, I bought a kayak from a guy in, on Lido Island, and I didn't know anything. I just had this idea, I'm going to get a kayak, <laughs> and I, I just kept going in a circle. I could not control the thing, and the guy's like, oh, dude, da, da, and I, I just kept going in a circle, but... Anyway, so I have a little sense of what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so I had a single to race in that year. I actually 
felt like I didn't do very well that year, but I actually did quite well. It's mm-hmm. just I had overly high expectations. Okay. And uh, we actually, you know, ran into national team politics, so I didn't make the team that year. It's, I finished fourth in the singles, which I was disappointed at. But for a first-year competitor in a single sculling, actually, that's pretty good. You know, when I learned later, looking back, I said, hey, you know what? That wasn't too bad. I was going to go back and scull again the next year, but my partner, Bruce Ibbotson, who we had rode a pair with my senior year and finished second in the world trials. We were really close to making the national team my senior year in college. And so he wanted to train the next year uh, in a pair. And I said, okay, I can pull it off single for a while. And so that following year, he and I went up to Seattle and trained in a pair to try and make the national team. And we were really good. Fastest in the nation at that time. But my career ended prematurely with AFib. So, Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what happened? And I deal with AFib, so yeah. I'm interested to hear somebody else's story. <laughs> we were doing training pieces out on Lake Washington about two weeks before we were going to leave for the trials. We had already trained with the national team who had come out and trained in Seattle for about a month. And we worked out with those guys and beat them all. This was the U.S. National 8. And they tried to recruit us to join the 8. We didn't want to do what we wanted to do our pair. We were rowing really well. We were out doing two-mile pieces at, at 28 to 30. And about three-quarters of the way through the second piece, my heart just took off racing. Now, ever since I ran cross country and rowing, I would have these incidents happen at rest, like at night, and the heart would just start racing and then kind of breathe and calm down. I couldn't breathe for a little bit, but I read about it and it was normal for for trained athletes to have that kind of stuff. I had my EKGs checked out. I didn't have an enlarged heart per se. It was just something that was normal, but it's not normal to happen when you're at work. Because when you can't breathe, it feels like you're having a heart attack. You actually can't do anything. You actually have to stop rowing because Mm -hmm. you can't physically move. And so uh, we try, I calm myself down, paddled off for a little bit. I say, let's, you know, we weren't quite finished with the piece. Let's finish the piece, Bruce. And then toward the end of it happened again. And then... At the time, in 1976, there wasn't a lot known about right, it. Right, I bet. There was one athlete I'd read about that had it. Remember Terry Cummings in the NBA? Played for uh, San Diego Clippers back then. Maybe a little. Really good athlete. I read about him in Sports Illustrated having this AFib. And he would have to leave games and things like that. But he was a basketball player. And I hadn't really heard much about it. And there hadn't been much around about it. I saw the best cardiologist at University of Washington. And then when we went back to the trials at Penn, I saw them. And they saw it happening. They didn't think there was anything they could do with it. They did tested me on an ergometer with a EKG on it. And it's interesting that I couldn't reproduce it on a treadmill. Uh-huh. It would only happen when I was rowing motion. Interesting. It was very fascinating. So I have kind of a theory on that, which I'm not going to share here, but... But because I've, I've heard of more AFibs among highly trained rowers than other athletes, than, say, cyclists mm. who train just as much, swimmers train just as much. But it seems to be more frequent in rowing than other sports. Interesting. Okay? 
Yeah. So th- this issue just came up for me yeah. in the last couple of years. It's not unusual for highly trained athletes to get this. Uh, that's my right. understanding. Is, is yours too? Very highly trained, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I had done a marathon recently. I didn't break any records, but I had done a yeah. marathon. So that's what he originally thought it was, but that's not necessarily now. Have you ever had an ablation? No. So they'll shock your heart back to a normal rhythm because, you know, AFib is when you're, can either your heart can accelerate or it can get out of rhythm. Right, And you exactly. really can kind of function with it being out of rhythm, which is kind of weird. Yeah. So they'll shock it back into rhythm. And then if you get it several times, then they do this thing called ablation where they'll, you know, insert this thing through your thigh and then they'll catheterize. Uh, yeah. Cauterize, the, the, yeah, 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 cauterize. cauterize. Um, apparently, you have too many electrical impulses to your heart, so they try to eliminate the ones that are causing the AFib. The, so, right, yeah, right. Well, yeah. apparently, the, the the strength of the heartbeat generates its own <laughs> signal. Is is what I understand? It, it, is that the the strength of the heartbeat, how powerful it is, generates its own signal, uh, a cross signal. So oh. it it crosses up with the. What oh, the interesting. System, I think is the way I understand okay. how that kind of works. Okay. And so, so I mean, I always kept an eye out for it, and I was really amazed to read about this athlete named Rob Waddell, who was an Olympic champion who had AFib. He went into single sculling because of AFib, because he didn't trust himself to be in a team boat and let his teammates down. Okay. But if he was in a single, he could stop rowing. And he was able to treat it, and they were able to treat him. He was able to go through a number of seasons without any symptoms and going fine. But then in his last year, he started having symptoms again, mm-hmm. even with the the uh, treatments that he had. They had d- drugs they were taking and stuff that they were no idea back when I rode. Right. And right. so I filed his – and so he retired. He was right – retired Olympic champion in 2000 and decided – or 2004 and decided to go off like a lot of rowers and became a um, – grinder on a on america's cup boat for new zealand oh wow and changed the training program but trained every bit as much as he did in rowing okay i just trained his trained his butt off to be you know and they won america's cup yeah and and it wasn't a problem never had any afib symptoms for the four years or five years he did the america's cup so decided to go back into rowing again saying it's gone and then when he was trying to make the team, it had an attack during one of the trials races. It's just, I, you know, the good news, at least for, for my part, is like the doctor said, you, you have not damaged your heart in any way. Right. So hooray, hooray, don't change anything about your life. Really? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I, if you're going to have something, I guess this is one of the better, right? It, seems... I, it hasn't bothered me. It, yeah. It, just, yeah. it was a, a supreme disappointment to not make the Olympic team. I bet. Uh, I have a little story about that. I was really... Hey, hang on for just a okay, second. Let sure me enough. just update the... Excuse me again, Coach. Just, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI women's rowing coach, Mike Sullivan. We're just talking about AFib because we both have this issue. And you have a little story, Mike. Well, when I, I ended up not being able to race the trials. Very bitterly disappointed. All my friends uh, wanted to go to Montreal to watch the Olympics. I would refuse to go with them. I wanted nothing to do with the sport anymore. I wanted nothing to do with rowing. I was so bitterly disappointed. Not at, it hurt. Not at my friends. It hurt. 
Yeah. I, I ran off to New York. I had an uncle there by my uncle Bob Sullivan, who's 10 years older than me at the time, or he always has been. Yeah. <laughs> but he was uh, like just an awesome guy. Yeah. And he lived up in the city and he lived up in Yonkers. We worked in Manhattan as a bartender across the street wow. from the Carnegie Hall. Wow. So I hung out with him and he was talking to me about this. And Bob had played NC2A basketball. He played at Dayton for the Flyers on the 1965 NC2A team. Mm-hmm. So he and I were talking sports and, and the, the Olympics were on TV and I wouldn't watch them. Mm-hmm. And he goes, tell me about this. And he said, well, I just, I'm just really bitter about it. He goes, I, I imagine that's true. He said, you worked really hard. I said, nobody worked harder. And I go, and you didn't make it. You failed, right? Yep, I failed. I didn't make it. And he goes, um, is there something else you would rather have been doing? And I thought about that. No. That was the best time of my life right there, just trying to make that team. And I realized then I was at a choice, kind of a crossroads there. Had people calling me up asking me to coach. I didn't want to coach because I didn't want anything to do with the sport anymore. And I thought about that and I said, yes, it was worth the time training and not making it. And I suddenly understood that George Bernard Shaw quote, what's worth doing is worth failing at kind of thing. I paraphrasing his Uh quote and it suddenly made sense that that I said, yeah, I can look somebody in the eye and tell them if they want to try and make the national team, it's worth trying even if you don't make it. And so I can look them right in the eye, honestly tell them that. As opposed to somebody who's been there, you know. Coach, I love that story. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, so then you decide you're going to coach. Yep. So where do you go then? I got recruited to come here to Irvine, head coach there at the time. I came here and coached freshman and coached here for about three years of freshman and then four years of varsity after that. And then moved on when I got to a point where I needed a career. And there's no careers in rowing. There's two careers in rowing at the time on the West Coast. I had to move on and get a real job at the time because it didn't pay. Gotcha. So, uh, it, you know, part-time pay. And I was bartending at, across the street over at a place called Don Vito's, which was at the town center at the time. Okay. And I was bartending now, what, there. It didn't look anything like Oh, nothing It, it like was this. back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that shopping center, the liquor store. Y- yeah, there's the second Kinko's was there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The second Kinko's. Originally, there was the bar there was called the Spritz Garden, and then the Madden Brothers bought it and turned it into Don Vito's and for about, I don't know, three or four years it ran there. So what do you do in your new real career? Uh, when I got a real job, I actually started a company with a, a friend of mine for a couple of years, and we failed in computing. And then I, I knew I'd get back into programming at some time. And so I found a job at Stanford in a project they were doing, converting their phone system. And so with typical 30-something chutzpah, I knew nothing about the business. I knew nothing about the programming languages they were using. But I walked in and said, I can do this. Yeah, I can do all this stuff. Yeah. And so learned the language, learned the business, and then wrote the entire business applications for telephony for Stanford University, 30,000 phone lines and a whole bunch of data lines and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Put it all online. It was all a Pac-Bell paper system. Yeah. Wow. It was impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So how big was the, the group that did this? There were three of us. One of us did the services side, you know keeping track of 
who has lines. And the other did the billing in COBOL and wrote the billing code for billing phone lines. I did the cable plant management. I did the service ordering, the trouble ticketing, all the other types of business applications. I was just making them up. I would talk to a, some one of the field techs, and they say, how do you keep track of when you go out on a service call? How do you keep track of the information? Oh, we have this thing called a line card. And he showed me what a line card looked like. And I said, oh, I can produce this. You know, well, this is from the trouble tickets. Oh, these are the previous. And, and so this was all stuff that people were writing down into books and paper and all this kind of stuff. And so we had to put that online. My first attempt at it was a complete, ridiculously stupid failure. And I, I saw it as soon as I was like demonstrating it. To the guys who were going to use it, I said, oh, this is just awful. Uh-huh. This is just... I, I had worked in computing for a couple years while I was training. So I, I'd uh-huh. done some business applications in BASIC for a company in L.A. while I was training for the national team. So that was really fun. It was a fun job, part-time, made enough to live on. And and uh, and that was the, the crossroads I met. When I was deciding, they called me up when I was after I didn't make the team. And the, my manager, the company had gone out of business, wanted to start his own company and wanted me to come in. I said, what do you want me for? I'm your worst programmer. And he goes, <laughs> I mean, there's a really smart guy, you know. I goes, I, he, goes, he goes, I don't want you to program. I want you to be a manager. You know, I want you to be a manager. But you can't work part time. Uh-huh. You have to come here. And you, it's going to be like more than full time. We're a startup software company. Yeah. So it was a choice between that or going to coaching. Oh. Yeah. So were you an independent co- company or yeah. did you actually, they you were? Company. Yeah, oh, it's wow. called Odyssey Systems. And they were, our company in LA, our group in LA was very successful, but the other four around the country could not make a living. So the company shut down. I didn't get my last paycheck. <laughs> like one of those things, yeah. So, so yeah. I see on your resume, Stanford Linear Accelerator National Lab. Is, yeah. is that what we're talking about? Well, that that was my second job at Stanford. That oh. was the, the physics lab, which produces all the physics, uh, not all of them, but most of the physics um, Nobel Prizes in this country. And uh, I was working there for, as an applications programmer after I worked on campus. But for, for what they do there, I might as well have been cutting the grass. So they, I was an applications programmer for the very first website in the United States. So, wow. Yeah. Early days. Those were early days. Okay. I, I programmed a language called Spires, which is now defunct. Huh. And I was the last professional Spires programmer in the world. Huh. <laughs> Did you ever yeah. cross paths with Steve Jobs? No, mm. never did. No. Never. Uh, I might. I say I might have been in the same room with Wozniak one time, but no. Yeah. I ran into all kinds of guys around campus that I didn't know. Typical Mike Sullivan. It's sort of like Forrest Gump. You're in the room, and you know, all these things are going around you, and you have no idea what you you know what you're doing there. So I'm sure I was in the same room when we were talking about doing some things. I'm sure that Scott. What's his name at Cisco was there. I'm sure he was there because we were talking about routers and stuff. And he came out of that grad school there. So we were talking to some of the academic side people about networking. And I was in the room when that was going on. I'm sure I was around a lot of those people. Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy working at Stanford? I loved it. Yeah. It's like me at UCI, I think. Yeah, I loved, I loved working on campus there. It was I loved working for smart people. Um, That was really enjoyable. Yeah. 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 And just like I like coaching, I like coaching smart kids. 
Mm-hmm. I yeah. like coaching college, so yeah. Very cool. So you leave UCI to kind of go into your career. I needed to. I your, needed, real, your real I career. To make a career. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So ha- that. I was having too much fun. And are you still work? <laughs> are you still doing that job now? No. Well, I mean, a, I, I just finally got the last Spires program got shut down two months ago. Okay. So I was still supporting a little, some little Spires is the programming language, a few little small applications that were still up. They hadn't replaced yet. So I was doing a, you know, a few hours a month helping them out, which was nice because I had a Stanford.edu address for a while for about (laughs) five or six years after I retired. So that was kind of nice, but that's over. (laughs) That's history. Now I do see on your resume competitive, body surfing can you briefly tell us a little bit about that that is all in fun i mean i I Uh, definitely gone to a lot of contests and things like that but it's not anything like competitive rowing we go out there we have fun and it's like everybody gets a trophy of some kind you know and uh, i know it's getting more competitive now i really don't like it Uh because the idea is just the intrinsic body surfing Uh and i got into the contest because i was up in northern california body surfing on my own in remote breaks with nobody around and feeling kind of scared and oh. would be nice to have some other people around. Yeah. You know? And so I met a few body surfers here and they told me about the contest. So I thought I'd be able to hook up with some other guys and women who, who body surf, especially, you know, if you go out three or four days a week at a remote break up there, you won't see anybody there, but they might be there another three or four days a week or a different time of day. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should have been here two hours ago. You know, uh, Jill was here. Or mm. Jimmy was out, you know, or something like that. One of the surfers would tell me. So anyway, I got into the contest that yeah. way. Uh, okay. Not for competitive reasons, but just to meet other yeah. body surfers. Yeah. So would you say that you body surfed the wedge on the biggest of days i mean do, do, do you ever not body surf i mean do you still body surf well until i broke my knees last summer uh, okay i uh, was body surfing. body surfing well no 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 uh, i was working on my house okay so i i've slipped on a i slipped on a step stool and knocked my kneecaps uh, off and, and severed my my uh we're getting old man quad ten- oh it has been very very mentally painful getting through this year but i will tell you I rode two waves yesterday. All right. So at the wedge? At, no, no, no. Uh. I I gave up the wedge many years ago. Okay. So yeah, the wedge is just too much of a too much of a scene. I, I like to go out at 18th Street. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, would you um, body surf the wedge back Not in the anymore. but back yeah, in the day? Back in the day, you would. So what is that like? I mean, you must be a really strong swimmer. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm strong enough. You have to be able to take off well. But I've seen some pretty weak swimmers out at the wedge. Oh, really? They're really good swimmers too. But as far as taking off on a steep wave like that, there's well, not you, a lot of swimming. You must be fearless. No, I'm very scared. I did it because I was scared, and I said, "Well, let's get over okay. this." You know. Yeah. Wow. But there are guys who are and women who are absolutely fearless. You're right. I'm not one of them. Wow. But I did it because I felt like I had to. You want you know, okay. I, I okay. better do this wedge thing because everybody's doing it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this up there, you're looking, I have fear of heights. Yeah. And when you're up on a on 20 foot of face, that's a long way down. Yeah, that's, and there's yeah. not much water at the bottom, right? Right, exactly. How do you control yourself in that? I mean, well, you practice. I mean, you uh, don't start out on there. The, on the, gotcha. You don't start out on a wave like that. But I've gone out on lots of big waves other places besides the wedge yeah. you know i went out on a like a 15 
15, 20 foot day at the pier at Newport pier. Okay. A couple friends. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, it was, that's probably 30 foot of face. It was breaking over wow. the top of the rail. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Out there. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Head Coach of Women's Rowing, Mike Sullivan. We're now talking about his return to UCI a couple of years ago. Here we go. Please update us now. You come back to UCI, is it September 2020? Yeah. Okay, so how does it work out that you come back? You just called him up and say, hey, I want to come back. No, actually, uh, AJ, the head coach, men's coach, called me up. was wanting to know if I was doing. I had retired and I was coaching up at Davis. And I had actually tried to come back and coach here. But Duval Hecht and I had a feud over some issues. And so he wouldn't let me back into coach. So I came down here, body surfed every day. And my game plan when I retired was to coach rowing, coach elite athletes, coach college athletes, and body surf every day. That was my game plan. I'm starting to get the feeling life. of like the endless summer with you. It is definitely, it's how I want to spend my days. And so that year I body surfed every day, but I didn't get much coaching in. <laughs> and then the next year I decided to, uh, that I really needed to coach. So I went to UC Davis and coached the men's novices there. And that was really fun. That was really good. And it was the Davis kids and Irvine kids are all the same. Then AJ gave me a call. He saw me, what I did up at, at Davis. He wanted me to come down. Wanted to know if I was interested in coming here. I said, of course I am. Yes. And AJ runs the he's rowing the, he's pro. He's the head coach. Uh, yeah. of, the, yeah. of the men's team. Of and the it, men's team. And he'd been kind of running the whole program so what, somewhat and putting the energy into it. Head coach by default. Let's put it that way. There's a lot, lot of work that has to go into that. And he was, he was doing the work. So how's it been since you came back? fantastic oh that's so great. he brought me down here and i brought a fleet of singles so that we could row through covid and it's just so happened it was one of the things i'd been doing over the many years while i wasn't coaching college was collecting and fixing up old boats and and making them row again and especially because i started a rowing program up north where i live and helped at another rowing program near Stanford. So I was always had my fingers in rowing. But while I was coaching and raising a family, I did not have cycles or energy to invest into, like coaching a college program or anything like that. So stayed away from that other than filling in here and there. But I've always been teaching, and I've always been involved. And so I have probably a fleet of something like 100 old boats. Wow. Between my house up there, I have a fleet at, at Davis, a fleet in the Bay Area. I've sent a fleet off to uh, Reno and then a fleet down here and uh, uh, of small boats, of singles and pairs and things like that that I've people have discarded. We have a, People like to buy shiny new things, and so they there isn't enough market for old broken boats. So I mm. just decided to just take that on to get them rollable again and... A lot of them are really stupid projects, fixing some of these boats up. I look at it, and I'm, well, I'm, gonna st- I'm on a stupid project right now. There's a boat that I don't know if anybody really wants to row, but I'm fixing it anyway. And, and it turned out to be very productive that the year, that last, that COVID year, having those boats around. The university couldn't really help out the kids too much. And so I was able to put the boats out at the Newport Dunes and wear masks around the the boats, and then people could go out in the single skull. 
Oh, you know, well, wow. we couldn't get into our own boathouse, but we had a rowing program anyway. Wow. So, wow. yeah. That's so, great. Yeah. Is it different coaching men than women? Yes. Yeah. Can you define that a little bit? Um, I would say um, women want much more communication. They want they they want much more communication, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily of a particular kind. You just need to communicate with them a lot mm-hmm. more. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's not the first time I've heard and, that. And and the I I think that I think women's leadership works best. Women are really good at collaborative leadership, and so I think coaching wise, you're well advised to collaborate. Mm-hmm. That it helps with the buy in. So you can have a training plan A and training plan B and typically no matter what that training plan is or that teaching plan is, the one that works best is the one that the athletes buy into, Mm -hmm. okay? And I'm I'm used to with coaching guys, especially coaching novice guys, telling them what to do and then that's it. Gotcha. Very good. Coach, we have like 30 seconds. Anything you want to say to potential, you know, people, students who are listening that are like, I'd like to be involved with that. How do they get involved? Um, They come down like I did. Just come down and try it out. We'll have uh, recruiting and if they come to SPOP, we'll see some of the athletes kind of wandering around and talk to them about it. We have a presence on Instagram and things like that. And AJ stays up with all the social media. And so you can look and see what's going on there. And then UCI Rowing has a Facebook page. And then in the fall, we'll be on campus recruiting. Okay. And you just come on down to the boathouse and try it. It Great. doesn't cost anything to try it. And yeah. you can always Google UCI Rowing and Absolutely. those for lots of information. Coach, thank you so much for coming in and talking all about your life, career, and rowing. It's been really fascinating. I, I really appreciate it. And here's a gift. The book is called Boys in the Boat. Apparently, it's a great read. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And if you bring the athletes back in the fall, we'll bring you a T-shirt. Okay. <laughs> That's a deal. Okay. That's a deal. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. If you'd like to hear an encore or rebroadcast of this show or any of our past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer. You've been listening to my interview with UCI women's rowing and crew head coach, Mike Sullivan. A moment ago, he referred to SPOP, which is the Student Parent Orientation Program. Check it out if it applies to you. Thanks for listening here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We will see you next week. Zot, zot, zot.